All right. Well, last week, as we have been talking about uh, Christianity and the arts, we started to discuss uh, music, and uh, we talked uh, briefly about getting into music within the church, and so we're going to uh, take that up uh, a lot more specifically uh, this morning. And uh, I want to answer uh, some, uh, some questions about that and address some myths about uh, music in the church and the history of that. And, uh, and then we will uh, we'll look at a few passages that we see specifically in the New Testament with regard to music in the church. So uh, last week, just as we were ending, uh, the question was brought up because uh, if you recall last week, I, I played for us uh, a, a song and you all recognized, oh, I know the tune to that. That's uh, House of the Rising Sun. And I explained, you know, this is, uh, th- this is a song about a house of ill repute. So would it ever be appropriate that we would sing the song Amazing Grace to the tune of the House of the Rising Sun? And I tried to argue and conclude that uh, no, that's not a good, uh, that's not a good way to uh, sing uh, a song that is sought, it seeks to praise God for His grace in our lives uh, to the tune of something that we all recognize to be a song about, uh, about something that is clearly uh, sinful and degrading. And so uh, the question in that conversation always comes up, well, what about songs by, that we sing today, hymns that we sing in the church today? Weren't they set to popular music in their day? And the, the most common of all of that is Martin Luther used to write songs and sing songs, and he set all of his words to his songs to popular music of his day, especially uh, bar tunes. Now, there is, there is no, uh, there's no controversy about whether or not Martin Luther enjoyed going to the pub and enjoying a pint or many with his friends. That is a well-documented fact. However... Uh, Martin Luther did have very strong opinions as to whether or not the music that they sang in their revelry would come into uh, the worship of the church. And so that's the question. Are many of our favorite and most enduring songs within the church set to tunes that were borrowed from drinking songs or bar melodies or tavern music? And the answer to that is absolutely not. Um, now, first of all, I think this, uh, from what I can tell in my research, this myth sort of started because the talk about bar music. Well, actually, bar music is a type of uh, music not associated with a bar where people go to drink, but rather uh, a bar as in um, uh, it's, a, it's a mode of music. And it's very common. You see it specifically in jazz music. It's used prominently. Uh, you see it in some forms of rock music today. Uh, it's, it's changed significantly from the 16th century. Nevertheless, it's a type of music has nothing to do with a location like a bar or a tavern. It's a type of music. So that's in probably in our modern thinking where some of those rumors began was people associate uh, what it's called, the type of music, with, uh, with the bar. But Nevertheless, let me, let me give some, some more context here. One of, the, one of the most common arguments for the use of sort of Christianized commercial music in corporate worship is, is this idea uh, that <clears throat> hymn writers of the past, uh, when they wrote their music, it was very contemporary. 
And uh, I even read one commentary. He said, we should go as far as taking a song like uh, Justin Bieber's Baby and replacing the word baby with Jesus, and, uh, and that would be good in our current context. Um, that's just ridiculous as far as I'm concerned. Um, you shouldn't ever sing Justin Bieber. Uh, but if you, if you delve further into uh, Reformation and then uh, Puritan era um, writings about music in the church and worship in the church, they had a lot to say. Um, and specifically with Martin Luther, because he's the one that comes up a lot, um, he was very interested, obviously, a big part of the Reformation was empowering the people of God uh, to be able to come to God apart from all of the trappings of Roman Catholicism. And so, obviously, very important to him was that the people of God had the Word of God that they could uh, read and study and understand on their own. But part of that, too, was that the music of the church was accessible to the people of God. Prior to Martin Luther, and certainly in, um, in the medieval era, in the Dark Ages, leading up to the Reformation, what was the music like in the church? Okay, so there was a lot of the, what we would consider, uh, for lack of better terms, we call it Gregorian chant, right? Uh, that you have, um, who were the people who did it? Was it the congregation? No, you have, so yeah, monks, but generally, and unfortunately, what often happened was that they formed choirs, and these choirs were often formed out of uh, young boys, and they, as they matured, they would um, develop uh, how, what part they would sing within the music, and uh, some of them were made to be eunuchs so that their voices would stay high, um, and as they aged, uh, they, they kept their, they, because they thought that would prevent them from going through puberty and all these, I mean, there were all sorts of things that happened in order to provide uh, the, the music that was uh, supposed to be going into what they considered to be their worship. So the congregation... Uh, in all of uh, medieval, especially the Dark Ages, all the, uh, the so-called worship was very passive. The congregation simply sat and received everything. And most of the time didn't even understand it. Why? Because it was in Latin, and most of them didn't speak Latin, depending on certainly which nation they were in. But the vast majority of the congregation was ill-equipped to handle anything that was going on because they were... Uh, primarily uh, a people who were uneducated in anything beyond their trade. And so the music, uh, when it gets to the time of the Reformation, was very, very important to the Reformers. And Martin Luther really took this up because he saw in the Scriptures that the music of the church, the music of God's people, was to be something that we participate in together and not passively listening to someone chant something, albeit very beautiful. If you've ever heard it, it's, it's beautiful music. And yet, it was never intended, as we see it in Scripture, and we'll look at the, uh, the text, that we simply sit and hear it even though it's beautiful. We see in the Scriptures that the intention is that we are engaging in the singing of God's music to God um, as a, as a congregation, as a people of God together. And so, when it gets to the Reformation, this was a massive change that took place, was the reintroduction to the church of congregational singing. 
And as a result, Martin Luther wanted to do what he could to make this as simple as possible for the people of God. Now, I think uh, we could say, well, one of the ways that that could be done would be to do something familiar to the people. But Martin Luther actually outrightly rejected that idea because in Martin Luther's mind, the idea wasn't that we borrow from the culture and bring that to the church in order to make it something that is more useful. But what actually ended up happening, and where some of the association comes from, that Martin Luther wrote his own music to the words that he was writing. And that music was so attractive to the people, and it was so simple in its ability to, uh, to be sung, uh, that the, the culture around in Germany started taking up the tunes to Martin Luther's songs and writing popular music to that. And so it's actually quite the opposite of what we often hear in terms of the myth of what has happened with uh, the music. Uh, so this is something uh, Martin Luther wrote to one of his, uh, a preface to one of his hymnals. He said, These songs were arranged in four parts to give the young, who should at any rate be trained in music and other fine arts, something to wean them away from love ballads and carnal songs, and to teach them something of value in their place, thus combining the good with the pleasing, as is proper for youth. And so he was concerned that everyone in the church was able to sing uh, the music, and that's a really important element to our music that we need to keep in mind, this ability to be able uh, to sing the songs. They should be singable, uh, and that's something we'll talk about a bit more uh, down the road here. Um, so we can't use Luther, we can't really use any of the hymn writers to make our case if we want to say that uh, the music in the church should be borrowing directly from what we see in, uh, in the world. It's clear that Luther would not be supportive of using uh, that kind of argumentation. Uh, and in fact, Luther was, he did a lot in terms of music. He wrote, uh, he wrote 37, uh, as far as we know, directly by himself, at least 37 four-part hymns, uh, the music and the words. Um, Thirteen of them came from Latin hymns of the Latin service music, and he uh, did translation and changed the music to it. Four were derived um, from religious folk songs in Germany. Two had originally been religious pilgrim songs. Two are unknown in their origin. And one song... He had one song that came directly from a secular folk song, but the first time he heard it in the church, he was very agitated by the fact that he had heard it outside of the church um, to different words, and so he changed the music entirely. And so that argument, that myth, really collapses when you start to look at the actual evidence. This is not what Martin Luther did. And so it's, uh, even if we're using a, an historical argument to make the case that maybe we should set our music today to modern um, tunes, well, Martin Luther is a bad example to do that. Now, um, all of this is not to say there's some inherent evilness to music that is outside of the church. I do not believe that. I listen to a lot of music of all kinds of genres from all different people, and many of them are not Christians. But the profound poverty of artistry and imagination that's found in cultural music is quite staggering. I think we can all probably agree with that. The most creative 
And the most beautiful music that has been created throughout uh, the history of the world, by and large, has come from Christians who have sought to create music to express something of God's beauty and majesty in what they're doing, whether it has words or not. Um, I just recently read a, uh, a book-length um, argument that one, I'll see if you can guess who it is, one classical artist wrote music in such a way that uh, this writer was arguing, the scholar really was arguing, uh, that this is the only true form of pure Christian music. Does anyone know who that might have been that he was writing about? What did you say? The Newsboys. Nope, not quite. <laughs> Josie? Handel? Nope. Uh, right, uh, close right era. Bach, yes. Johann Sebastian Bach. Now, when Bach undertook the writing of music, he used many, uh, many forms in his, in his musicality, and they were very different than what was coming out of that era. Because Bach's primary concern was to do what he, in his mind, uh, concern himself with as being uh, Christian in the sense that it met the principles that he saw in Scripture, things like um, that it is not chaotic, uh, that uh, things like dissonance were resolved, uh, things like uh, the, the order and symmetry of the music. Um, and if you listen to uh, Bach's music and you have these things in mind, you start to see that. And I don't know... Uh, if you've ever noted, if you've ever looked at a piece of Bach's music that he did in his own hand, at the end of every song he wrote SDG, Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone, was how Bach wrote all of his music. And, uh, and so, you know, I think uh, after reading all of that, uh, the argument in my mind is uh, it's unsustainable. I don't think you can argue that uh, something instrumentally is or is not... Uh, particularly Christian, nevertheless, I think uh, that the intent, remember we taught, we were talking about visual art in the past, and we talked about the artist's intent, and what did they mean to communicate by this is important to us. And so, uh, maybe though, today, in 2019, you might listen to Bach, and if you don't know it's Bach's music, you just might think it's some kind of background music that they play at the fresh market while you're buying fresh groceries. Um, which I love, by the way. It's one of the things I love about going to the fresh market is the wonderful music they play. You just feel so fancy buying fresh uh, vegetables with uh, Bach and Mozart playing in the background. Absolutely. I'll, buy, I'll spend a lot more money there because of it. <laughs> uh, but if you know what you're listening to, uh, hopefully the artist's intent, at least, is that it will uh, assist you in contemplating uh, and contemplating God and contemplating the scriptures and thinking about the things of God uh, as you are hearing this. And again, um, our general, uh, if you will, cultural lack of understanding of music and all of its forms uh, is, uh, has much to do with our inability often to be able to do that. Now, I would suggest that Martin Luther and those like him would be appalled at today's uh, lack of musical uh, knowledge among the people of God. Uh, they spent a tremendous amount of time in the church teaching people about music, uh, how to sing, how to read notes, uh, because they saw this as vitally important to the worship. 
of God's people. Uh, nevertheless, it is what it is today, and so our modern music, um, some of it tremendously good, uh, some of it uh, confined to four chords and no more. Um, so let's, uh, let's think, though, about what the scriptures say about all of this. Um, how many, if you think about the New Testament, how many places can you think of that address uh, the music within the church? Uh, where do we see music and singing in the New Testament, specifically? Kaylee? Yeah. Yeah, good. So we have uh, two uh, commands, the sister letters, if you will, uh, to the Ephesians and to the Colossians. Each of them has a statement about that. What? Yep. Good. So Revelation deals with this, that we all collectively will be singing forever is, uh, is what we see together. Yeah, Russ? Okay. Uh, yeah. Sure. So all throughout the Old Testament, we have this. Um, there's, there's plenty of examples throughout the Old Testament, but in the New, yeah. <laughs> it's all right. All right, so let's, let's think specifically about the commands that Paul gives in his two epistles, in Ephesians and Colossians. Just very recently uh, preached on this, but uh, some more we can uh, think about. So uh, look, at, um, look at Ephesians 5. We'll deal with Ephesians. Ephesians 5 and verse 18. 18, well, sorry, 19. Starting in 18, he says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. All right, so uh, essentially the same thing he says in Colossians 3, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly or among you richly as you teach and admonish one another. With wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God, or thanksgiving in your hearts to God. So, what are some principles, just reading that verse, what are some things that stand out to you as to how we should think about going about the music within the gathering of God's people in the church? What stands out to you? Yeah, Derek. Yeah, yeah, just when we walk, yeah. <laughs> Whistle while you work. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Excellent. So if, yeah, if, if as we take the command, it says we're doing this, this is always interesting to me, that we're singing. Yes, we're singing to God. Yes, we are singing to the Lord. And many of our, many of our, our lyrics to the songs that we sing direct us that way, right? However... The command is what? To sing to whom? To one another, right? And if I'm doing that, I need to be able to sing something uh, that we all collectively have some understanding of, right? And so it needs to be intelligible. It needs to be something that we can sing. It's singable, right? Good. What else? Yeah, Derek. Yeah, what, I think what we see here, this is my argument, that what we see here is not any kind of performance whatsoever, but rather that it is a, a collective singing of the people of God uh, together. So, uh, now, 
many very faithful Orthodox Christians might disagree on that point. And uh, I think they can make some very valid arguments, especially when you go back uh, to uh, see what's going on in the Old Covenant and some of the Psalms might address some of these things. Uh, Nevertheless, I, I do think it best within the gathering of the body, the corporate body, uh, that we at least focus our primary attention in the music on the corporate uh, singing of, uh, of the words together. Again, because we're addressing one another in song. What else? Yeah, Josh. Good. So one of, uh, one of my concerns... With um, and obviously we do this. You don't. We don't have any hymnals at all. But one of my concerns with the removal of hymnals from churches is that when we have the words on a screen, is that all of us sit there or stand there and we stare at the wall, and we get so focused on that uh, that we are uh, we're not really even thinking about the words and their application to our lives and to our hearts. One of the things I try to do personally uh, is to sort of do what I can to get out of um, sort of being so focused on that and what I'm sounding like and everything else, um, I try to read the words really quickly to remind myself of what they are and then to not look at the screen but to look away from that uh, so that I can think about what I'm singing as opposed to just being so engrossed in making sure it's all as is written or whatever or, if, you know, all the things that we think about when we're sort of engrossed in this. We need to be intentional about our singing. It's it's this work of applying the word to our hearts in the same way that when someone else is praying and we're listening uh, and we want, to, uh, we want to be praying those same things in our heart alongside them. As we're hearing the Word of God read to us, we want to be thinking about it and applying it. As we're hearing the preaching of the Word in the gathering of the saints, we want to be thinking through it and applying it. So should we also be doing the same in our singing. Uh, for whatever reason, we seem in singing, um, because there is an emotional element to it, we can't escape from that. Uh, that's part of that. We can easily get sort of pulled into that a little bit. And as a result, we're concerned about the emotion of it. We're concerned about how I sound. Uh, The people around me are going to hear me sing. What do I sound like? And if you're not a good singer and you know it, uh, you're very self-conscious about that. If you're a good singer and you know it, Uh, then you want to sing out so everyone can hear you maybe. Uh, If you are not a good singer but you don't know it, well, then that's a problem for everybody. Uh, So uh, we we start to think about all these other things instead of what am I singing and how am I seeking to uh, think through that and apply that in my own life and understanding of who God is and what God has done and how am I reminding my brothers and sisters of that through the singing. Good. What else do we see here? Yeah, Kaylee. Yes, yes, I agree with you. I think uh, now they ha- certainly have arguments against that, but nevertheless, I agree with you. I think that this, uh, these uh, requirements that we have in the New Testament, in Ephesians and Colossians specifically, uh, tell us that we should sing songs with variety, that we should not just be psalms only. Um, the opposite extreme and problem, I think, is that in many churches today, uh, they don't sing the psalms at all. And that's a problem. 
uh, we have a clear command here that the psalms should be sang. We need, to, uh, we need to have that as a part of our regular worship, and we try to do that here. Um, but to be very honest about these three terms, no one is entirely sure exactly how all of this uh, divides up. Uh, the psalms, we can easily identify um, what those are. These are what God has given us in, uh, in the book of Psalms primarily. And there are other psalms throughout the Bible. They're, they're songs that God has given to us. Uh, hymns are generally, and this is how I've generally understood it, hymns are a certain form of music. And you have, uh, you have verses, every verse is different. Uh, typically, not always, but typically a hymn doesn't have necessarily a chorus to it. Uh, but you're, you're singing, uh, you're just singing the verses. Now, some hymns that we would call a hymn have a chorus, but most of them uh, do not. Spiritual songs, I think, are just other kinds of good music that can be sung in the church. Um, and again, you can read a hundred commentaries on this, and at the end of it all, they all have to admit, well, eh, we don't really know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, that it's a specific form. So we have the psalms from the psalms in the Bible. A hymn is a form of music and spiritual songs another form. What that meant in the first century, I think, is where we get hung up as to what the difference is. I think today we, you know, we generally can sing something and say, oh, I know that's a hymn versus uh, this, which maybe I would call a spiritual song, but... Um, I don't know what that meant in the first century. I don't know what spiritual songs they were singing other than what we see in the scriptures. Um, Okay, so variety. So here's how we think about variety, specifically as we think about music here. Uh, Just because something is old doesn't mean it's good, and just because something is new doesn't mean it's bad, and vice versa. But we do want to maintain some things. For example, we think it's important that we identify with the history of the church. We have a long heritage, a long tradition of Christian music used in the worship of the church, and it would be uh, a tragedy if uh, we were to do away with that. Uh, If we were to no longer sing songs like um, All Creatures of Our God and King, uh, which I think is from the 11th century, 10th century, Uh, If we were not to any longer sing things like, Be Thou My Vision, or Crown Him With Many Crowns, or A Mighty Fortress Is Our God, these kinds of songs should be a part of the worship of the church. It identifies with the history of the church, and to be quite honest, as far as I'm concerned, uh, these songs uh, have some of the words that will be very hard to beat. Uh, they, they are uh, so rich and so full of theological truth, uh, they have endured the test of time. We still sing them today because they were so good then and they continue to be so good now. Now, these songs come out of hymn books. Uh, I have many of those hymn books, and we don't know the rest of the songs in the hymn book uh, because they just didn't endure. They weren't as good. They weren't as helpful to the church. And so over time, they were done away with. And I think uh, in, in 100 years from now, uh, people will look back and say, in 2019, you know, we could name two or three songs that have endured the, the times. And, uh, and, 
yeah, I think the Gettys music, probably some of that will probably endure because it's, it's beautiful and it's helpful and it's theologically rich and all these things. Whereas, uh, you know, that song, I don't even know the name of it, about give, uh, something about a sloppy wet kiss that I don't even, what is it called? What is that song? Someone know? Uh, good. I know, I was, that was a test. You guys passed. Okay, yeah. I don't think that's, I think it's probably fading away even now, <laughs> hopefully. Yeah, Sam. Yes, good. I, I think uh, one of the things that uh, I've tried to do in my home is that uh, we'll take songs that have difficult passages like that. Uh, that I know for sure my kids have no idea what we're talking about, and to spend some time just explaining what do these words mean and what, why is this important. Um, yeah, I think a lot of Christians sing about raising their Ebenezer, and they don't know what that is. Maybe they know a kid named Ebenezer and think they're lifting him over, you know, whatever. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, what, what does that mean? Well, we should take the time to figure that out. Instead of toss it aside, I think, and say, well, this just isn't useful. Instead, let's figure out what it means. There's some theological uh, significance here. There's some historical significance here. Um, I think of another one. um, How sweet and awful is this place? Now, we think today, we use the word awful as if it's a bad thing, right? Oh, that's awful. My son... Every time I feed him dinner, he says that. It's awful. Uh, He doesn't like my cooking. Um, It doesn't come out of a box, that's why. (laughs) If it's out of a box, he loves it. Um, Yes, but what is being said is that it's full of awe. How sweet and awful is this place. It's awful. And so instead, and this is one of those examples, instead of educating ourselves and thinking about what's being intended by the words... Uh, many have changed the word to awesome. How sweet and awesome is this place? Well, awesome is not the same as being filled with awe. Awesome is a good word in its proper context. But in so many ways, awesome is used for everything today. And so it doesn't inspire the same kind of thinking as filled, being filled with awe. And that is, uh, that's a very important thing, I think, that we should maintain. Now, of course, uh, our children need to be instructed on this. Many adults need to be instructed. Why are we saying it's sweet and it's awful? <laughs> uh, it doesn't seem to make sense. Well, because it means something different than what we, what we think. Figure it out, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now... Uh, two more things on this real quick. We've talked a lot about older music, but what about newer music? The Lord continues to inspire His people uh, to write new and good and helpful music for the church. Music that I think will endure uh, in the centuries to come. Uh, you think of, uh, think of something like Amazing Grace. When Amazing Grace was first sung at Independent Presbyterian Church in Savannah back in the 18th century, it was a brand new song, and everyone was saying, hey, I kind of like this. Oh, this is a good song. Maybe it will last. <laughs> it has lasted. Um, I think we have songs like that today that we'll sing. Here's one I think is going to last. I could be wrong, of course, but uh, we'll see. Uh, you know these lyrics. O church, arise and put your armor on. Hear the call of Christ our captain. 
For now the weak can say that they are strong in the strength that God has given. With shield of faith and belt of truth will stand against the devil's lies, an army bold whose battle cry is love, reaching out to those in darkness. Uh, That's the first stanza of this song, O Church Arise, by Keith and Kristen Getty. I think it's a beautiful hymn. It's filled with biblical illusion. It is filled with theological truth. It is, uh, it is something that we can sing to one another to encourage us in, uh, in the Christian life, to encourage us to keep pressing on as, uh, as God's people. Now, one of the other things we do here, at least, as we think about uh, the music within the church Sometimes songs are written, and by and large, they're very good, and they have endured for that reason. And yet, we read it and say, you know, there's just this one line, and it's not right. (laughs) It's not good. Um, And I think we stand on pretty firm... uh, on pretty firm um, precedent to say that every now and then we might need to um, change a thing or two uh, within the song, uh, not so that we have, you know, vocabulary that's different or whatever else, but rather that uh, the theology is sound because we have to think that as most important, right? What we're singing has to be true. If it's not true, we shouldn't sing it or we should, I think we can, at times, fix it so it is true. So, for example, and many of you may not even know this because this is how we sing it, but if you ever sing it anywhere else, you're going to see that it's, it's different. Uh, this song, And can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued? Amazing love, how can it be that thou what? That thou, my Lord, shouldst die for me is what we sing. But originally, Wesley wrote this song and said that thou, my God, shouldst die for me. Why is that even something we would bother to change? Yeah. Quite simply, God does not die. Christ, as mediator, second person of the Trinity in his humanity, he died. And, of course, we affirm that and we love that truth uh, for us, that Christ died on our behalf. Uh, but, um, but God, our triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, uh, God did not and does not die. Christ died. And, yes, uh, we, uh, for anyone wondering, yes, of course, we affirm uh, Christ's divinity. Christ is divine, uh, but Christ has two natures. And there's a, there's a massive historical theological debate over that. But the historic position of Reformed churches, and I certainly believe, your elders believe, that uh, we should be careful with that. And there's another line here, too. Um, uh, Where is... Okay. He left his Father's throne above so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. Is Is that correct? Did Christ empty himself of all but love? Yeah, it says, uh, sorry, I just left that. Um, it says, emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. What do you think? 
Yeah, so one of the ways that this is addressed, uh, the, the way we sing it, um, the Trini- we use what the Trinity hymnal has done. And um, trying to find the, uh, the line right now. Um, okay, here it is. It's in verse uh, 3. Humbled himself so great his love and bled for all his chosen race. Now, there's an issue of limited atonement there. Uh, there's an issue of uh, what he was doing in terms of the emptying of himself. Um, and so, dealing with the theological issues there, humbled himself so great his love, instead of all but love, and bled for all his chosen race, uh, the issue of uh, atonement. So, uh, I think that's appropriate and necessary at times that we look at the hymns because this is otherwise a tremendous hymn. This is a beautiful song. It's one of my favorites. Uh, I love, I love the, the, the line. Um, I quoted it recently. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my Lord, shouldst die for me? That is an amazing amazing line of hemnody, and we shouldn't throw it out, uh, but sometimes it may need a little bit of adjustment. Yeah. Sure, I think that's a great point. We, need, we want to be exacting in our doctrine of God, absolutely. Ethan, then we'll be done. Exactly. Yeah, and all of his other attributes as well, right? That he is all of what he is and not made up of parts. So there's a major doctrine there, doctrine of divine simplicity that comes into play, but that's for another day and another class and another 12 hours. So <laughs> let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for our time together. I pray, Lord, that this, uh, this conversation will have been useful to your people. Uh, even this morning as we sing, that we would be more mindful of what we're singing Uh, that we would be seeking to apply it to all of our hearts as we're singing to one another, as we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, uh, that they would uh, bring joy and devotion to our hearts, that they would bring pleasure to you, uh, and Lord, that we would do all things in a way that honors you and uh, that glorifies you and that uh, brings depth and richness to the Christian lives of all of your people. So we pray now you would prepare our hearts for our time of corporate worship and that it would all be to your glory and for the good of your church. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.